Hello, hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Stephen Quinlan, who works as a therapist. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers. And I recently started watching all the Harry Potter movies again. And it's okay. They are certainly okay. They are okay. Um, Are they on HBO again or is this just Yes, they're on HBO again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard because I have so much nostalgia for Harry Potter because I was the age group. I get Um, it. So, yeah. Yeah, I I, I totally get those feelings of, huh. Yeah. I mean, the, the fire has certainly died and for, for good reason. Um, and I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a cishet white woman. And my pronouns are she, her. And I, uh, barring a DIY beauty product accident last week, I haven't used paper towels in two months. Nice. Good for you. Thanks. It's weird. <laughs> Using using a lot of linens, washing a lot of linens, but it's it's exciting. Awesome. I didn't think it, I didn't think I could actually do it. Um, but yeah, I'm a hero. I'm brave. You so. are. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I'm realizing that you can see the Harry Potter books right to the top of my head. They're right there. <sighs> oh yeah, I, the orange one is Deathly Hallows. And like, am I mm-hmm. wrong in that the first Deathly Hallows came out over 10 years ago. Is that wrong? No, I think I, I was in high I, school. Yeah. So. That was 07. No, the Deathly so Hallows was, was, oh no, not the, the book I know, but the movie. No, that's what I mean. The movies. Didn't, weren't they, wasn't the first I, one? I was post? definitely 20. I'm talking about the last Deathly Hallows. The last That was, one. or like the second to last one. That was over 10 years ago. Yeah. <gasps> I mean, it all started in 2001. It was the first book, I think. yeah yeah i i like to i think yeah man what what a part of our childhood i and i like to like let people know that i'm sad about harry potter not because like i don't get to enjoy something nice anymore but because i'm sad that like uh, you know there was it was something that was enjoyable for me because it was written for me (laughs) because i have all of the right identity and right pieces and um yeah yeah so take that to the bank Mm-hmm. And invest it because your future is important. Yes, yeah. You definitely want. I definitely want to read them again. Maybe that'll yeah, be I, my. I think like, it would be a. It would be a fun journey. Postnatal Maybe. journey. <laughs> postnatal journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that sounds very nice. I did. I. I think over. I talked to you about this at the end of the year last year. I reread all the Lord of the Rings books. Oh goodness! <laughs> and I'm still 
still reading the Silmarillion and you know what I got to say, folks, it's not always fun reading that book. There's every character has a name and then there's a name in a different language and then they have a name in a third language. So yeah, I'm always looking at the back to see who the hell I'm reading about. Yeah. I tried reading those in like middle school. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. I remember it was like my gym reading book when they make you like read in gym. Did that ever happen to you? <laughs> I was never made to read in gym. Oh, um, we would all like sit you mean on like the when you forgot your gym clothes? No, or? no, we would all like sit on the ground in a row, and then you had to have a book with you. And I was like, I'm gonna read Lord of the Rings, and <laughs> like while like, waiting while your attendance was being taken. No, this was gym. This was gym. I think the only other thing I remember from gym is that they made these very crazy obstacle courses, like the floor is lava stuff. And uh, we had to like throw a plastic fish to each other while pretending the floor is lava. Were you standing on something that wasn't lava? Yeah, like like pads, you know, like the little. Okay. Yeah. No, I never had to read. I just had, you know, one, one, what was it called? Marking period where I learned about the horrors of STIs, but not about actual sex. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah. Did you did you learn about did you learn about sex in health class? No. Like in sex ed? Yeah, we saw a lot of really scary pictures, which I don't think were actual pictures of infections, like real real internalized negativity about STIs. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not obviously mm-hmm. I'm not like really moralizing them. <laughs> like <laughs> yes, yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we also had a climbing wall in my middle school. So we got to do that. That was fun. Like rock climbing. That was really neat. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Belay cool. on, you know. Did you have a cafeteriatorium or did you have We had a cafeteriatorium. Okay. So I think it was just called wait. a cafeteriatorium, but Well, cafeteriatorium we is <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we had a gym, we had a cafeteria that was uh-huh. also an auditorium. So it was a cafeteriatorium. Okay. So I was just about to say out loud, what's the difference between a gym and a gymnasium? And then I realized that I think y'all just said it the same thing differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all the same. All us yeah. East Coasters are the same. Am I right? We've all got cafetoriums. 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 Yeah. Man, I'm just proud I can say that word. Yeah. Definitely amazing. No. yeah most words are you're right (laughs) Um, how are your floors floors are fine as usual I never recall mistakes that I make and I know I make them we don't make mistakes so oh you're right how about about yours both proverbial and no they're perfect I mean proverbial literal literal of always dirty because like I can't push a vacuum Mm -hmm. anymore so Oh, oh, also, literal, I do have a rock tumbler on my floor. That <gasps> I, bought my, I bought my dad for his birthday two months oh, ago. I thought you were and I went to visit rocks. them. <laughs> I went to, so his birthday was in February. So and I, went, I know, I'm so sorry. I went to visit them last week and I forgot it. So still he just, he can't start his hobby yet because I'm. 
being I've got, I have to, I have to do my rock tumbler. It's on my like list of things to do before I give birth. But the problem is that the rock tumbler is on the floor uh, and I can't reach the floor. So I'm definitely going to need some assistance. Um, But I have, I definitely have rocks. I need to finish tumbling because I'm not going to tumble rocks while I have a newborn because uh, it makes noise <laughs> so. I'd, I'd love to have you like see you set up like a serving tray on pumpkin's back where because she's like strong where she can just have yeah, like she's strong like rocks that she brings she likes to, you. to eat them <laughs> okay yeah she i let her sniff them and she puts them in her mouth <laughs> stop every time i try to humanize cute. her she does a dog thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah Oh, Lord. Anyway. All right. Well, stay tuned after the break for our lesson for today. And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the field or part of the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today include an article entitled Selective Mutism, a Review of Etiology, Comorbidities, and Treatment by Priscilla Wong, MD, and you guessed it, wikipedia.org. <laughs> trigger warning, no trigger warnings for today's lesson. Bam. Bam. Let's start with selective mutism. Well, that's where we're starting and ending. So let's start with selective mutism. What (laughs) is it? Selective mutism is a rare childhood disorder characterized by the persistent failure to speak in in specific contexts where speech is typically expected, despite hearing and speaking in other settings and contexts. This can happen in large groups, schools, religious institutions, etc. It was classified in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual for Mental Disorders, 4th Edition, Text Revision, or the DSM-4-TR, under the category of disorders first diagnosed in infancy, infancy, childhood, and adolescence. It has since been moved to anxiety disorders in the DSM-5. The DSM-5 criteria for selective mutism also specifies that the persistent failure to speak in specific contexts can't be explained by the following. One. An organic inability rooted in language ability, comprehension or comfort of speaking the language. So we're not talking uh, second language. Um, two, another communication disorder such as stuttering or stammering. Or three, um, concurrent diagnosis of pervasive developmental disorder, schizophrenia or other psychotic disorders. The symptoms need to be present for one month and may not include the first month of school. The disorder substantially interferes with education, occupational achievement, and social communication. The illness can continue into adulthood, hindering an individual's ability to reach their full occupational and social potential. The incidence of selective mutism is not certain. Due to the poor understanding of this condition by the general public, many cases are likely undiagnosed. Based on the number of reported cases, the figure is commonly estimated to be 1 in 1,000, or 0.1%. However, a 2002 study in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry estimates the incidence to be 0.71%. 
Jenna, did you know that DSM-5 TR actually came out this month? I know, it did. So our first year of grad school, DSM-5 first edition was a big deal. Yeah. A lot of our a lot of our schooling had to do with the changes and we didn't even know yeah, what we they were, were like, changing sure. from. Yep. Yeah. So welcome. Welcome to history. All right. Maybe we now. can do like a separate episode on the changes or something like that. Oh, that would be fun. I yeah. mean, educational. We can make it fun. We can make it, yeah. Let's move on to the history of selective mutism. In 1877, German physician Adolf Kosmau described children who were able to speak normally but often refused to in certain settings as having a disorder he aptly dubbed aphasia voluntaria. Hmm. All right. Although this is now an obsolete term, it was part of an early effort to describe the concept now called selective mutism. In the early 1930s, the disorder was renamed elective mutism, again emphasizing the elective or voluntary nature of the persistent failure to speak. The current DSM-5 diagnosis describes the condition as selective mutism, with the word selective emphasizing the select situations characterized by failure to speak rather than the intentional withholding of speech, as several previous terms implied. In 1980, a study by Tori Hayden identified what she called the four subtypes of elective mutism, although this set of subtypes is not in current diagnostic use. These subtypes are no longer categorized, though speech phobia is sometimes used to describe a selective mute person who appears not to have any symptoms of social anxiety. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM, was first published in 1952, and included selective mutism in its third edition published in 1980. Selective mutism was described as a, quote, continuous refusal to speak in almost all social situations, end quote, despite normal ability to speak. While excessive shyness and other anxiety-related traits were listed as associated features, predisposing factors included maternal overprotection, mental retardation, their word, and mm -hmm. trauma. Elective mutism in the third edition revised DSM-3R is described similarly to the third edition for specifying that the disorder is not related to social phobia. In 1994, Sue Newman, co-founder of the Selective Mutism Foundation, requested that the fourth edition of the DSM reflect the name change from elective mutism to selective mutism and describe the disorder as a failure to speak. The former name elective mutism indicates a widespread misconception among psychologists that selectively mute people choose to be silent in certain situations, while the truth is that they often wish to speak but are unable to do so. To reflect the involuntary nature of this disorder, the name was changed to selective mutism in that year. As part of the reorganization of the DSM categories, the DSM-5 moved selective mutism from the section Disorders usually first diagnosed in infancy, childhood, or adolescence to the section for anxiety disorders. I'm glad that Sue Newman came in and laid the law down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stay tuned after the break for our interview for today. Stephen has spent more than 20 years as a therapist. He started out his career in New York City, where he worked in the East Harlem housing projects for five years. It was an extremely difficult environment. There were shootings, poverty, drugs, and unimaginable suffering all around. But he learned a lot about himself as a therapist there. He learned that he was good at connecting with children and teenagers. He learned that he was good at thinking outside the box on how to help people. 
Perhaps most importantly, though, he learned that there was only so much trauma he could expose himself to and not be profoundly affected by it. As he and his new wife moved to greener pastures in New Hampshire in 2005, he found himself hoping that a change in scenery and the kind of clients that he would be working with would help him to avoid some of those nagging feelings that he had been having around his career choice. How could this be sustainable? Could he really continue to work? Could he really continue to do this kind of intense work for the rest of his life? What if he made some kind of mistake getting into this field? He knew he had to turn things around. Today, he works with clients that he loves. His job as a therapist takes about 15 hours a week and his income is six figures every year. He gets to spend his free time taking care of himself and working on side projects such as coaching other therapists, his podcast, and writing books. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Of course. I love that intro and congratulations on 15 hours a week. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's uh, It's been some work to get there, but uh, well worth it. Absolutely. I've definitely asked myself all of those questions about the field <laughs> before before opening my own practice, just repeatedly, like what, what have I done? So I'm yeah. so glad that you uh, normalized that for us. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I I, uh, I think we've all been there to some extent at some point as your journey as a therapist goes along. It's it in some ways inevitable, uh, but I you know the reason I'm putting a lot of this out there is because I, exactly as you said, I want to normalize that for people and to let them know that there there is hope at the end of the tunnel with this stuff, and you can get to a place where you can have time to do other things, do be they passion projects or self-care, whatever it is, and uh, have kind of this new relationship with your work again. So it's been so transformational for me uh, that I just really want to try and pass that on to others. Yeah. Can you tell us? That's wonderful. Yeah. It's so amazing. I think we're going to, we're both going to yeah, have a lot like, of like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steven, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, um, well, do you want me to start kind of at the beginning or where I'm at now, or where do you, where do you want me to go? How about know. where you are now? Yeah. And then okay. maybe we can work backwards. Work so our way back. Sure. That hope a little bit too. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so where I am now, and I don't certainly don't want to give the impression that, you know, obviously everything is rosy or that my work as a therapist is now, Hey, it's easy and it's no problem. <laughs> Uh, because of course it's not as challenging work. We all know that to some extent when we get into the field, but the way things are for me right now is that I spend a fair amount of time on these outside projects and also on things uh, like exercise and meditation and yoga and all these things that I know kind of will help me personally be at a place where I can do my best uh, for my clients. Um, and I think that there, there's really something too that, uh, like you hear about selfishness and that word, it has this negative connotation to it, but I feel like all things, um, personality aspects or words, even there's two sides to that coin. And if you're really focusing on yourself, uh, in a, in a healthy way, 
we know what happens is that you, there's sort of this byproduct of you, you become more altruistic yourself and you, you are more present for other people that are there in your life. If you're focusing yourself on an, on a negative way, then you tend to be more closed off and cynical and all of those things. So it's, it's a question of intention, I feel like, and, uh, so for me, what that's allowed me to do is to really try and be there with my clients in a new way. And also you mentioned, you know, the, the 15 hours a week, it's a shorter way too. So it feels more sustainable. I know if I, one of the things I talk to a lot about other with other therapists is knowing what your number is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can mean a couple of different things And this, in this instance, it refers to knowing how many people it is that you're going to see in a week or in a day, if you need to break it down in that way, what's the point that you get to where you're like, I'm completely fried and I just, I've got nothing left and I'm kind of going through the motions here. Uh, so for me, that looks like, uh, in a daily way, uh, my number's four, uh, and in a weekly way, it's right around 15. So I really, have to limit myself to, to stay in that place. It was very hard at first. I think particularly you mentioned going out on your own in the, in the private practice and it's, you know, you have to kill to eat. Right. So there it's, it's very scary to say, no, I'm not going to add this extra person on because there's a part of your mind that goes, Oh, well, there goes that money out the window and I'm not getting, you know, there goes that, uh, so it takes a lot of, I think, discipline and willingness to try that and see what happens and then reminding yourself of what the difference is when you're thinking about kind of scheduling that extra person or whatever it is. So my practice is kind of transformed from, uh, feeling like I was really dragging myself through it. I was seeing way too many people. I wasn't really making that much money to the place where I am now that has allowed me to, um, live this life that I felt like wasn't necessarily a possibility for me. Uh, and so much of what we do is the self-limiting beliefs that I want to challenge people with. Like, why is it that you feel like you can only make this much money? Why is it that you feel like you can only charge this much as a therapist? Why is it that you feel like you want to be on insurance panels? All, all of these things. Um, so that's, uh, I mean, I can keep going with that for a while, but just to, <laughs> to, to, to let you know what my practice in general looks like, I do see adults and teens and, and kids. I do still see a fair amount of kids with selective mutism. Um, I, uh, going off your intro that you did, it was a kind of a specialty area of mine, which having that niche area is also, I think, important for people. Uh, and there's a lot of feelings that people have when it comes to picking that out, um, for me, going backwards a little bit, the way that that happened is it kind of fell into my lap when I started working uh, at Easter Seals, which is an agency, and uh, there was a speech pathologist there, this Dr. Jolene Fernald, who her own daughter had been struggling with selective mutism, and she was trying to find resources to help her, and there was just nothing there. 
And so she kind of took it upon herself to say, I'm going to make this uh, clinic for kids who have selective mutism and just see what happens. And so it was cool because we had a multidisciplinary approach. So we had uh, speech pathologists such as her. We also had occupational therapists. And then I was the mental health component uh, side of things. So, and it just kind of blew up. We had people coming from all over the place, out of state, uh, because there was such a dearth of services. Uh, and so that's how I kind of got started with that. Um, going back to your intro, uh, it's interesting that, and I've seen this in other places that it's classified as being a, a rare childhood disorder. Uh, the, that study that you cited, cited, which was from 2002, um, the, the other way to look at those numbers is one in 146. So when you think about it that way, it feels a lot different than the, I think it was the 0.7% that you mentioned. Yeah. It, that, and we know that autism has gone from one in 88, to, I think it's one in 44 now, and everybody knows about autism and there's all kinds of services. Um, but those numbers for selective mutism, which are now of course, 20 years old, uh, and we, we know that the incidence is much higher than that. Uh, there's, it's, there's really, it's a lot more common than a lot of people think. Yeah. Thank I'm you for putting that it, spin on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's really important. Have you in your work, Stephen, have you noticed any uptick in that since the pandemic and like inconsistency and in in-person schooling or. Um, I, I don't think I've seen an uptick in that so much. I think I've seen what's been interesting is now that things are starting to level out a little bit. And when people started going back to school in September, there was a lot of transitional difficulties for kids and people who have anxiety in general, uh, and certainly kids who had selective mutism, uh, because they were at a place, a lot of them where they're kind of all set, like you're, <laughs> you know, you don't have that stressor of, I have to go off to school. Oh, I just get to sit here in my room and mm. maybe I'm allowed to turn my camera off. And things were very comfortable for a lot of people with anxiety. And I think also for some mm -hmm. people with depression, even, um, so that when that happened, I saw a big shift in people and families, kids struggling with returning back to school. So I, I definitely, I definitely noticed that. Can you talk a little bit about vicarious trauma? I mean, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but kind of explaining what it is and like how it affects therapists and maybe how personally it, it changed your work. Yeah. Um, thanks for that question, because the other thing I'll just touch on briefly before I get to the vicarious trauma is the, the, the trauma associated with selective mutism is also mm. something that's sometimes misunderstood. And that's actually more accurately classified in, in terms of like PTSD symptoms. Uh, so there, there, you can look at it in terms of traumatic mutism, which is a separate, uh, diagnostic category, at least in my brain anyway, I don't think that's not actually in the DSM, but, uh, that's where that is coming from 
whereas the selective mutism is really an anxiety-based disorder that they already have that, and that's where the, the difficulty with the speaking comes in. Um, but in terms of in terms of my own trauma, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, it's it's interesting because going back to when I was uh, a young, you know, green neophyte therapist and going out into the world, and you mentioned that first job that I had in at the East Harlem uh, housing projects, I had a sense that somehow needing to take care of myself didn't apply to me. I was sort of, you know, this young buck out there, like I've got, this is fine. Uh, even though I knew what it was, uh, and certainly the environment that I was in, uh, as far as I would go to work and there would be, you know, my office would, they would have police tape around it one day because, mm -hmm. Hey, there was a murder there last night. So when you, you see things like that in the moment, you tend to kind of laugh it off with your other colleagues and try to just sort of feel okay with what's happening. Uh, but eventually you know, this stuff wears on you. Um, and I started to get a sense of that while I was there, just from the environment. Um, there were, I mean, the hallways always smelled like pee. There was, uh, all kinds, you know, I'd be walking a client back and uh, try to ignore the fact that there's clearly a drug deal happening there right next to you. Uh, so there's that impact on you as a therapist, but then there's also the stuff that your clients are bringing in, uh, which is just so difficult to, to hear and see people that are really struggling in these profoundly difficult environments. Uh, something else that kind of brought into focus for me was my own sense of uh, privilege as, you know, obviously I'm a white cisgendered straight male. Like I, I sort of, I couldn't get any more privileged and I had grown up in Colorado in this kind of beautiful sheltered environment. And then to see what was going on uh, in the quote unquote real world out there? Uh, it was a it was a big uh, it was a big eye opener for me uh, in terms of what my own experience has been like growing up. So uh, I I don't think I that this stuff really started to catch up with me until a little bit later. You mentioned we moved to New Hampshire and um, and I started working at community mental health. And as you said in the intro, I. I I had this sense that, okay, well, some of this stuff is clearly just related to the environment that I'm in. And once I get into a new place, this is going to feel a lot different. Uh, this is sometimes you'll hear referred to as a geographical cure, right? Like mm. I'll, I'll go off over here and everything will be wonderful. Uh, and of course, what, what happened was that the, many of the issues, despite what the demographics were, of the clients were the same, uh, which I was really surprised by. And it also had an interesting effect on me in that realizing many of the quote unquote differences that I started to see between myself and the clients that I was working with are just sort of arbitrary lines that we come up with in our own head. 
And it doesn't matter if you are on the seacoast of New Hampshire and a beautiful house, or if you are in you know, the, the housing projects. Uh, many of these things are fundamentally human issues that we all have to deal with. Uh, so there was some appeal for me in that. Uh, one of the one of the reasons I got into doing psychotherapy in the first place was uh, I kind of fell in love with some uh, some of the Jungian works and his uh, idea of the collective unconscious and this this feeling that we all share something really profound regardless of where it is, you know, his, his work was around with uh, people in Europe and then also with, you know, tribes in the African bush who are completely separated from society. And yet there are these commonalities. And I just love that and found that really fascinating. Um, so anyway, when I started working in the community mental health, um, the problems were still there. <laughs> people still had problems and, uh, there became another form of, I don't think it was really vicarious trauma in that way, but it certainly felt oppressive in terms of the system of mental health itself and the requirements of productivity and paperwork and all these things that we know go along with community mental health. And I remember really vividly, uh, when I, you know, had failed, right? <laughs> of course that makes you feel great, right? You've, mm -hmm. you've failed to meet your numbers again, Stephen. Like what, <laughs> what, what is this? Why are you doing it? And I'm like, oh, sorry, dad. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, supervisor. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, they, they, I got kind of called in, you know, to the office and they said, well, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this has happened. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to take your salary and we're now going to make your salary four fifths of what it was, because essentially mm -hmm. you've been doing the work equivalent, uh, of four days of work as opposed to five days of work, uh, which brought me down to a hefty, I think it was $33,000 yep. that I was making oh. at that point. Um, and I have, you know, uh, a young kid at that point, uh, eventually we had another one on the way and it was just like, so difficult to try to continue to do this work. That's difficult already and feel underappreciated, uh, and really just kind of mowed down by the system. Um, so eventually I, uh, you know, I, I then moved on to the Easter seals job and, uh, I was there for you know, about six years, I think. And I had had ideas even while I was there. I loved working there. I love my colleagues that were there. I had that opportunity to develop that niche area. There's a lot of wonderful things that were there, but I was of course still really underpaid at that point. Um, so I had some ideas of kind of starting to branch out on my own a little bit. I think I had like two clients at a, uh, a psychologist and colleague's office who I would sublet from her. Uh, but I was still really scared to make that jump to private practice, as I think a lot of us are who have gone through that. Mm -hmm. uh, and interestingly, the universe kind of pushed my hand a little bit and the uh, Easter Seals office closed down. Uh, and so I had no choice, but to just say, well, I guess I'm going to hang out this shingle and <laughs> open up my doors and we'll see what happens. Uh, 
And I went through kind of a whole process with that in terms of being on insurance for a while, those things that I mentioned and sort of trying to think about what your fee and re- renegotiate that. And, but ultimately that was something that really pushed me in this direction of growth essentially, which is the whole point of the podcast, which is practice growth. So it's like you're growing your practice, obviously, but it also has kind of a dual meaning of continuing that your own practice of working towards betterment of yourself. That's me in a nutshell. A big that was nutshell. a that was an effective <laughs> nutshell. Yeah, that was a very great nutshell. <laughs> I, I'm really when you were talking, I was thinking about um, Stephen Porges saying that we are mammals are just incredibly resilient because it takes a lot to kill us. <laughs> you know, so we are we can actually we can actually withstand so much trauma and still like physically survive physically, mm-hmm. but emotionally, mm-hmm. you know. If we don't have the tools, we are just existing. And it makes me think about all these these folks that are obviously in situations that they won't be able to get out of because of, you know, because of that lack of access or because of that lack of privilege. But also, you know, like you said, even when we go to greener pastures, how we can still carry some of that stuff with us. And if we don't face it, I mean, it's just going to be hanging out there. We're not adding to it much, but it's festering, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wonder maybe a little personal, but how did you, how did you deal with that trauma? You changed your job obviously, but what was the personal work you did? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I'm happy to, to, to go into this. Um, I, for me, like there was a lot of these things, as you said, that were kind of hanging over my head and it was, it was a struggle to, uh, I didn't, I don't think I had the, the tools necessarily to know what to do with this stuff, even though, of course, the irony is that as a therapist, you're supposed to kind of know what, to, what to do, but it's, it always feels different when it applies to you. And it always feels different. What it's, I think it's kind of the same thing. Why? Like I can't be my child's therapist, right? Because that just, that doesn't work. And I can't be my own therapist because that doesn't work either. So, uh, I did start going to, uh, my own treatment a couple of times. That was definitely helpful for me. Uh, and I think it also gave me, uh, the experience of what it's like to be on the other side of the couch, so to speak and kind of some empathy for clients, how difficult it is just to even make that call and then walk in the door. Um, I also had to get really honest with myself um, about six and a half years ago and look at the way that I was using things like marijuana and alcohol to help me cope with, uh, all of this stuff. And I realized that it was just not healthy for me. And, uh, you know, being of Irish descent, there's obviously some concern there. Uh, so I had to, uh, I'm lucky that I didn't have, uh, any really, uh, serious repercussions from that, but I had to, I had to really, uh, look at that, which I did. I'm thankful. Um, and I just, since that point, uh, I've been completely sober and that's been, uh, just a big game changer for me. I think it's allowed me to, 
continue to progress in this uh, growth kind of mindset that we're talking about. Uh, and all these other things kind of come from that, uh, not just the sobriety, but also like uh, that that mindset of like, I'm going to continue to try and work on myself. Uh, after that, you know, I started, became a vegetarian a couple of years later. Um, I started running triathlons, like all this stuff wow. that I, I never thought, I, I know it's like, it sounds funny. Awesome. I'm like, I say it and I'm like, do I really do that? Or is it like, uh, <laughs> but it, it just, it just follows like one thing after another. And uh, they all build upon themselves. And so that's what I, again, like what I really want to do is to try and, and have people and, and therapists in particular make those little changes so that you can continue to progress in that, uh, in that way, because, and, and this is the real reason why I want to do this is we matter and we're so needed and it doesn't matter what society says you're worth or wh whoever says you're worth, wherever that's coming from for you. Uh, the need for mental health right now is just, I don't, I'm pe obviously preaching to the choir here, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's through the roof, right? I mean, how busy are you guys? And I, I, I'm really worried about a lot of, uh, colleagues that I've talked to and things that I've heard that people are just burning out and leaving the profession. And yeah. then we don't have anybody. And that's really scary. It's making me think about kind of how therapists, and I know this is like true for myself, that therapists have used cynicism to almost protect yourself. And that almost burns you out faster because it's like when you encounter something traumatic, you know, and, and bring it to your colleagues. It's like, oh, well, this, that's nothing. Here's what I experienced or like, oh, that's, and then it's just like invalidating, but it still feels wrong. And you're not really getting the support that you need. And those, I mean, we're talking about this like festering of, of trauma that just like, we're all carrying with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, where do you get the help from that, right? Like, what do you do? Do you go to, do you have a, a supervision group where there is that, um, support there or sort of validation? Um, or do you have a, you know, an individual supervisor or something like that? Uh, I, I think, I think there's sometimes there's confusion about, about where to find that. And I, and this is something also I've become acutely aware of. Unfortunately, I think, sometimes in agencies, there is a tendency to use self-care as something that is your fault. Mm -hmm. That like the reason that you're so burned out, it doesn't have anything to do with this like insane structure that we're putting upon you and expectations, but it's, you haven't really uh, taken the time to take care of yourself. And so a lot of clinicians, I think are even kind of like pissed off at this, uh, idea of like, oh, we'll just do some self-care and they're like, well, well you do some self-care, <laughs> like you try doing this, uh, and I don't have time or the resources or whatever it is, which is so unfortunate because obviously we know this about 
self-care or things like, you know, meditation or whatever it is like that you, you don't, the time you can find the time you can find the five minutes, you can find the 10 minutes. Uh, but if you already are feeling bad and guilty and judged, uh, by an external force, you're much more likely to be like, well, screw you. I'm not doing that because you know, it's that same kind of parental sort of like, now, Stephen, did you, did you do your self-care this evening? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So just message for anyone listening, you know, if you're new to self-care, you do not have to spend money on it. It, it yes. our, our self-care has been commodified. You do not have to have it be something extra added to your plate. Your self-care can simply be the way you talk to yourself. It can be the way you stand. It can be the way you sit in your chair. It can be the way you you move throughout your home, just like taking care of your body, being gentle with it and taking care of yourself and being gentle. And then if you want to move on to massages and save money for a spa weekend, sure. But yes. yeah. And also a <laughs> YouTube has millions, probably millions of five minute minute. No, not five minutes. They have millions of meditation videos. You can find a meditation video that suits you and feel comfy with it. And I think it's, I think the research says just like 10 or 12 minutes a day makes an actual change for meditation. So man, if you can do it, absolutely do it. Yeah. It's such a great point. That's it's, it doesn't have to cost money. It doesn't have to take a whole lot of time. Uh, and because even if you get a free meditation app or something like that, of which there are, there are many, there's mm -hmm. tons of free stuff on there. You don't have to sort of be like, well, I'm going to subscribe and get the pro version or whatever. You certainly can if you want, but it's just not, it's just not necessary. Uh, and I, I feel like for people to really honestly look at things that are holding them back in their life and try to address those things, even in some small way, because I know this can feel really overwhelming and I've been there and I've felt that way for sure, but the small changes, they really make a big difference and they go a long way and they build upon themselves. Like I was saying earlier, uh, and it's so worth it and you feel so much better. And I think it also gives you, uh, an understanding when you're working with your clients about, uh, making those changes. Like this is one of, this is one of the beautiful things about psychotherapy is that it's, it's incumbent on us to continue this process of, insight and growth and maturation and all of these things, uh, in order to do our jobs and to do them really effectively. So I, I feel like it's, there aren't that many jobs where that's actually your job. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like if I'm, if I'm selling encyclopedias or something, not that anyone does that anymore, but I guess I can say that without fear of offending any encyclopedia salesmen, because maybe there aren't any other, but if, if that's what you're doing, like you're not, you don't have to have that same focus on yourself. And so I feel like to, to not only feel good as, as a person, but also to really be a good, effective psychotherapist, it's just essential. Um, and yet it's so difficult to to do that sometimes. 
I think it's also kind of that trend of, you know, the therapist is like opaque. They're not really the person like, like kind of defocusing from there's another person in this relationship, the therapeutic relationship, you know, like that has all this other stuff going on and entering the therapy space. And I feel like, you know, becoming a, a, you know, a blank slate really dehumanizes therapists for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I want to just take that blank slate, sort of the tabula rasa, whatever, <laughs> just throw that out the Break window. It. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Cause I don't feel like that really serves either you as you're saying, or the client. And it's just, uh, there's something disingenuine about that process. Like now, obviously, you know, we do this within the context of therapeutic boundaries and all of those sort of things, but really being there and really being with somebody, uh, in that space where they are, I mean, that is the therapy, like that's it. Uh, it's such a big part of it. Um, so yeah, hundred percent agree, uh, that, that, that feels really outdated to me at this point, which is actually ironically, a lot of what I was trained in, uh, when, because I <laughs> went to too. school and right in the heart of that stuff in New York city, uh, which is kind of, there's, uh, there's a, a lot of psychoanalysis, uh, that, uh, I, I think probably still even to this day, uh, takes place. Uh, so I had to kind of move past. I could hear my supervisor's voice. I feel like a lot of this is about like super ego in some way, <laughs> like these like judgy parental voice. But I could hear my supervisor's voice. Like when I was doing some things with uh, the kids who have selective mutism that were like, I brought my therapy, my dog in and like, uh, you know, having them play fetch with the dog and they would have to make some little noise. So the dog would go get the ball. And I could hear my supervisor just being like, mm, I don't know about this. This like feels like it's outside the bounds of like you know, therapy. And, but of course what happened is the kids loved it and they got better. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was wonderful. And I, and I still have my dog here <laughs> many, many years later. And so that's been fabulous. So I'm, I'm yeah. so glad that you do that for your clients and you have, and also I want to say that my internal supervisor voice <laughs> is, well, as soon as that happens, just heighten the resistance and we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, be in competition with your client at right. all times. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Like maybe you win the Uno game this time yeah. and see what happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've seen some really funny memes about that with oh the Uno God. game where like, the, you know, the person like puts dead, like drops down the last card and is like, how do you like that bitch? And like walks away <laughs> Yeah. when you're doing that to, you know, a six-year-old, <laughs> like, hmm. I don't like it. But like, sometimes it's the only way to like talk to a kid. I mean, I've had that, like, once I started working with kids, I was like, give me Uno, get me all the, the silly, like, the silly putty and yeah. that's like the only way we can connect and that's okay right mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. yeah and and that's a you know play therapy is one of those things that is i think you hear that voice coming in a lot because <laughs> and and oftentimes the voice is like are you really just playing games here like what is like really like you i mean what, what is this is there anything actually happening here and i had to 
actually in some ways listen to some of those early supervisor voices, which would say, trust the process. And of course, what happens is you learn to recognize that this is their language and this is how it is that they're going to be able to be with you. And particularly, you know, when we're talking about kids who aren't going to be verbal with you, it just takes on even more importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really cool. There's therapists out there, especially now, you know, that, that therapy has moved a little bit more virtual that like play Minecraft during a therapy session, which is so cool. <laughs> like, I, I just think it's like getting to the, the client's level mm-hmm. and like being as authentic as we can be. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, that's kind of that old social work maxim is, you know, you meet your client where they are. Right. Uh, so, and again, it's about checking your stuff and having that under control enough to where you can really honestly, genuinely do that. Um, and that, that takes work that takes work on, on yourself. It takes understanding yourself. And, you know, to be honest, I think doing some of that deep work is really scary and a lot of people shy away from it. Um, and we're even as therapists, uh, we are, and I think this is a a large part of, of this podcast even is, you know, we were human beings, even though sometimes I think people wonder. (laughs) They do. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's our whole thing is like, we are humans. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. And I, I even have a couple clients who listen to this show and I've talked about it kind of <laughs> give me <laughs> feedback, which I always chuckle at and I'm always so appreciative about it, but I also just am grateful for the opportunity for, for them to have someone who's in, in their life invested as a healer, but also is, is not, um, is still living their life, you know, cause it lets them know that they can also help with other people, but still live their life, like working with a lot of people pleasers and which I, which is just such a difficult, uh, difficult personality trait to hold and to um, work out of yourself, but just letting them know that there is this, this side that we have so many sides is the point I'm trying to make. And we are allowed to, we are allowed to be both healers and people that set the boundary. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's like, I think there's maybe some fear that if you expose that, uh, personal side of yourself, uh, either to some extent when you're with clients or even just in general, uh, that somehow that means you won't be like sort of advanced enough as a person in order to be able to be somebody that can help me. Um, so you have to, I think be comfortable with the training that you have, the experience that you have, all of these things that you know are going to be helpful for people. And that doesn't go away just because you acknowledge the fact that you're a human being. I heard a, I heard a story one time of, uh, 
a, uh, I can't remember where this is from, but there was a, a client who was convinced that his uh, therapist was, you know, not really an actual person in some way until right before mm-hmm. he was going to come in into session. Uh, the therapist went to the bathroom and he could hear him peeing in there. And so when he came out of the, the bathroom, we got in a session and the, and the client was like, oh my God, like you are actually, you're a human being. And so they had this whole conversation about that. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I, well, it I'm, makes, it makes me think of when the, when I was doing agency work, I, the bathrooms for the, for clients and therapists were the same. Um, so, I mean, that, that turned into a lot of like crisis intervention in the bathroom, but it was also a kind of nice equalizer. Like, yep, we're all in here doing our thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we need to try to turn this into some kind of like bathroom, you know, urine therapy or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, what about Bob was like death therapy. I don't know if you guys remember that movie or not, but, uh, uh, yeah. Well, what brought you into the field originally? Uh, well, I had a somewhat sort of circuitous route in that I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do initially when I was in college. Uh, I am actually, my undergraduate is in philosophy. So uh, I was very much trying to figure things out. Um, I do think there was an early seed of that uh, wanting to do kind of that deep, profound work on myself as a person. I do think some of that was, was already there. It was just misconstrued and kind of this, you know, fog of, uh, early adulthood. And, uh, so when I got done, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I, I just happened to get a job, uh, that was kind of up the street at a, uh, developmental disability center, uh, working with adults who had disabilities and getting them jobs in the community. And, uh, I did that for two years after I finished, uh, undergrad. And that was when I started re- I remember reading my books on Jung and being, you know, with these people like out in the community and I, they would be off doing their work and I'd be like, Oh, I'll be flipping through my Jung here and reading this. And I, I thought what a cool job that would be to be able to, uh, really work with people in this deep way that just feels so meaningful. So uh, I, I got really interested in that and started learning about therapy and what it would you know take to become a therapist. And um, that's when I then went to uh, graduate school in, in, uh, in New York City and kind of made that jump there. Um, how do you feel like your identity, racial, ethnic, sexuality, gender, et cetera, has helped or hindered in your practice? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think it's, I think it's both. Um, <clears throat> I think that there are, as we talked about earlier, there are pri- privileged aspects to myself uh, as, you know, being the straight cisgendered white uh, male that it took a while for me to really start to look at those and try to understand those. And honestly, some of that work came as I was doing all of that other work on myself at the same time that I really started to look at that uh, and uh, started to try to understand things like it just in my own household uh, with my youngest child uh, who 
uh, a little less than a year ago told us that uh, you know they are non-binary, and so trying to understand that uh, has. Uh, been interesting, fascinating in a lot of ways, but also a challenge to, to look at what are my own biases around that uh, and just trying to acknowledge those. Um, so I think coming from a point of, of privilege like that and uh, trying to not feel guilty about it and being open and acknowledging it has been, has been a challenge. The way that it's benefited me is that there just aren't that many uh, male clinicians that are out there. So I get a lot of uh, referrals for, can you help my, you know, tween teenage son, dad's not in the picture. Uh, I feel like he really needs some, that male influence. Can you do that? And I'm like, sure. And it's, uh, it's a way that I've always been able to help those kids, uh, just by being there and being that, uh, positive, uh, presence in their life. Uh, so that's, that's been really nice. Are there any resources that you feel like everyone should know about just like therapeutic wise or human being wise? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, I would go, I would go back to the self-care things that we were talking about. I feel like, um, just for me personally, meditation has been just instrumental in, uh, being able to understand my own thought process, being able to communicate how to try to go about things mindfully for my clients. Um, this is kind of a buzzword these days, but I think that uh, there's so much value there if you're able to, again, try to understand that for yourself first and then communicate that to your clients. Uh, that's, that's just been great. Um, and um, you know, I think also, uh, yoga and movement, um, have just been really key for me. Um, you don't have to do triathlons. You can, you know, take the dog for a walk, which I do all the time also <laughs> as well. And just, just getting your body moving, uh, is absolutely huge for me in terms of what my mood looks like, uh, and, just how I feel for the rest of the day. So it's also another resource that, uh, you can try to impart to your clients because you've done that again. It's like, you go through those kind of, uh, working through of, Oh, geez, well, I should probably go for a run or I should probably go ride my bike or something for a little bit. And it's like, it's so annoying that you have to each time try to convince yourself, that even though you have the repeated positive evidence over and over again, it's just sort of part of being human being, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but again, you have that like visceral understanding of what that's like for you. So you can then more effectively communicate that to your clients. Yeah, I agree with all of that. <laughs> um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find you? What's the name of your podcast? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's practice growth is the name of the podcast. You can find that wherever on all podcast uh, platforms. Um, the website is growing the practice.com. 
uh, I am uh, starting a practice growth group that is kicking off actually just in a, uh, a few days from when we're recording this, uh, but I'll be offering another session of that coming up soon. Um, and uh, I'm also currently working on getting out just some short uh, five minute videos that uh, people can subscribe to that. I think I'm, I think the way I'm going to deliver that is like a weekly thing that shows up in your inbox just to try and uh, help motivate you along the, the path and also uh, point out some uh, business tips and things like that for therapists. Great. That sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> All right. Are we ready for our would you rather question? That's our last question of the. Oh boy. I I love, uh, I okay. This. I'm going to give us a choice of a question definitely meant for teens or a question that's not definitely meant for teens. I mean, like, there's a question that's definitely meant for teens and one that's like for everyone. What would you rather? So it's a pre would you rather? Would you rather? <laughs> <laughs> who, who answers this? You want me to answer? And both this are or? your choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is for you. <laughs> uh, uh, give me the the teen one because that sounds more fun. Great, good choice. Um, <laughs> would you rather have a friend that no one else can see? or have a personal assistant at school? Mm. I feel like this boils down to, would you prefer to like do less work or <laughs> have more friends? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, gosh, I think I'm gonna go with the assistant just because like the, the friend thing, while that's great, I also feel like that's there's potential for that to maybe get a little bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I go. I, I think I, I think I'd go assistant. How about you, Sarah? Joanna, do these? Does this invisible friend have a universe of other invisible friends, or am I and this invisible friend going to get enmeshed because I'm yeah. the only yeah, person that, in their that life. would be my worry is that it seems like kind of a lot of work. <laughs> I'll, I'll take an assistant. I'll take <laughs> yeah. an assistant. You're like, is this a codependent? Uh, I don't want to be enmeshed with a person okay. who can't be seen by anyone else. <laughs> this yeah. is my actual nightmare. I don't want to do yeah. that. I mean, the, the other underneath these questions, underneath these like prompts, there's also questions. So the one for uh, have a friend that no one else can see, the question is like, what? Which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, what Very do you mean? Cool. You're the one who wrote this. What do you mm-hmm. um, Is this written by a teen? <laughs> like, I don't what? know. Right. I have no idea. By teens for teens. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I would choose personal assistant because, yeah, like having a friend no one else can see, it seems like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are they just going to wait? No. Yeah. Also, can I see them or I can't see them? You can see them. Do they wear clothes? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't hope know. so. I mean, I know my answer, but. I mean, I guess that, if that they went to one. their own universe when you weren't like around them, I guess that would be fine. But yeah, like, it, is it like her where the person actually has like a bunch of other friends that they're friends with? <laughs> In this invisible universe? I don't know. Yeah. 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 All right, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you talking about the work that you do. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. And I, I really appreciate the the work you're doing around uh, destigmatizing mental health and therapists in general. And I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. All right. 
Thank you for listening to the show. Be be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TNDPod1, one is in the number one, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. If you would like the ability to vote on the questions we ask our guests and so much more like bonus episodes, um, <laughs> head on over yeah, to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You might learn so much more about us. Um, I'm trying to think like which Philly foods are our favorites. So, And where we were during... <laughs> national disaster yes um (laughs) if you would like to uh if you would love to be interviewed on the show please feel free to email us at therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com that's therapists plural next door at gmail.com you can also just send us a hello or a grievance whatever you feel like sarah yeah if you need to do that that's fine (laughs) yeah uh do you have anything to plug yeah i want to plug our patreon what is it? Patreon.com slash TNB podcast. Yeah, support uh-huh. us so we can continue to destigmatize uh, mental health and demystify the therapy experience through affirming care. You can find me on Instagram at teletherapy with Sarah. You can find me on the internet at teletherapywithsarah.com, uh, bi weekly b- blog posts for formerly working class, currently professional millennials, child-free millennials, all the fun stuff, millennials, uh, also coaching for the exploited therapists who therapists who want to open private practice and have been exploited by managers, supervisors, and bosses. Let's get you empowered. Oh, okay. There's the catchphrase. Ooh, I like Joanna. That. Do you have anything to plug? <laughs> um, you can find me at orianatherapy.com. I'm probably going to say by the time this podcast comes out, the window is, is closing as far as open, uh, openings in my practice, but it'll be back open in the fall. So don't worry. We'll open those windows back up and, uh, but you can still check out my website. Yeah. Orianatherapy.com. Good website. I think I already said it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Until next time, we, we are, your are your therapists. therapists. Next, next door. door. My, cat, my cat just meowed. Yeah, I heard it. Bye. Um, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>